0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Uh, lots of other stuff going on, too, including the conservative leadership race, which is just kind of humming along uh, with 14 candidates. <laughs> it's remarkable. I watched uh, part of the French language debate uh, the other day. Of course, that was Kevin O'Leary is not part of that because he well, he announced the day after that. But uh, he uh, has in the past told us, of course, about his, uh, his desire to learn how to speak French. Uh, and if he's actually going to be taking lessons on that, my suggestion is he's probably about another six or seven of those candidates could probably go along on those lessons with him because they're not doing very well at it. But with that leadership race coming up right now, how important is bilingualism? Let's bring Steve Paikin in. He blogged about this on his uh, blog today. Steve, of course, is host of The Agenda, which is seen every weeknight on uh, TVO. Steve, welcome to the program. Good to have
0: you back here. Always a delight to be with you on my hometown radio station, Bill. Thanks so much.
1: Let me ask, before we even get into the conservative thing, uh, congratulations. I understand you're in third printing now of your Bill Davis
0: book? That is true, yeah. The first two printings went uh, pretty smoothly over just a couple of months, and uh, printing number three should be ready uh, next week. And um, I I couldn't be more thrilled. You you always take a bit of a risk when you're writing a book about somebody who's been out of public life for more than 30 years. Uh, but apparently, there is quite an appetite to find out what uh, the former premier of Ontario did during the fourteen years he was there. Well, it's a, it's a fabulous
1: book, great story, and, and I mean, Bill Davis is an incredible person anyway, and uh, you know, it's it, I'm not surprised at this success. I mean, you, you've you've written some fabulous books in the past, but this one just really seemed to hit the nail on the head. And uh, uh, timing is everything, isn't it, Steve? When you release these things, I mean, I think I think there's a, a greater awareness of politics and, and political figures these days than there was even maybe five or six years ago.
0: Yeah, we have so many more ways of communicating nowadays with social media and so on, and, and that that's one of the great sources of feedback that I get because I actually have over the last few weeks been sort of traveling all over the province, uh, you know, a little bit, a day here, a day there, and uh, getting to places like Pembroke and Sault Ste. Marie and London, and, and uh, the wonderful feedback you get on Facebook or on Twitter, um, Instagram, these kinds of things to... Um, you know, to the stories that you put out there, to the you know, there's the sort of two different kinds of reactions. One is is great nostalgia from people who are sort of 50, 55 years and older, who who remember firsthand Mr. Davis's years as premier, and and if you're a little older than that, you remember when he was education minister in the 1960s. But then besides that, you, you've got new younger people or new Canadians who know nothing about him. You know, as I say, out of public life for 30 years and are intrigued to learn all of the stories surrounding him and all of the achievements that he's associated with, the college system, the Constitution, TVO, for goodness sakes. I mean, the list is really quite endless.
1: Well, it is. We just did a show at Mohawk College last week celebrating their anniversary, and, and of course, Bill Davis's name comes up. I mean, that was really his baby, wasn't it? This, uh, this whole yes, idea of community is- colleges
0: absolutely he was the education minister in nineteen sixty six They're they're sort of in the midst of a uh, year-long fiftieth anniversary celebration and i'm actually going to be at mohawk thanks for reminding me uh... february ninth i'm going to be at mohawk uh, giving a talk about the bill davis book and if you uh, Probably if you go to Mohawk's uh, website, you'll probably be able to find something, or just Google my name and Mohawk College, and you'll see something come up in case you want to come out and hear the story about Bill Davis and buy a book. Yeah, I
1: think it is on their website, as a matter of fact. I, I know I've seen it on social media, but I think they've got it posted up there as well. Our good friend Hillary Dawson up there was publicizing that the other day. All right, right listen, I, I, I love the blog. It's, it's called "Where are the Truly Bilingual Federal Conservative Leadership Candidates, and as I was reading it uh, this morning, Steve it it conjured up memories of, of of some of the past leaders both conservative and liberal uh, that have been in the PMO and uh, and they're, they're some attempt at fractured French. Others were pretty good at bilingualism. But uh, the one that you didn't mention that I always remember it was John Diefenbaker trying to <laughs> uh, trying to be bilingual. And uh, Richard Little, of course, uh, was probably one of the best impressions we've ever produced in this country. Always did a great Deef. Uh, but it's I, I think now uh, that we're at the stage where I think pol- politicians, especially that aspire to that office understand that you've got to be bilingual if you want the big job
0: well that is the huge question because the uh, certainly as you point out 14 candidates coming forward for the conservative party of canada right now and not a one not a one can speak both official languages of the country as well as say brian mulrooney could or justin trudeau for that matter can or his father pierre trudeau could uh, or Jean Charest, for example, from uh, the province of Quebec, mm-hmm. a former PC party leader and former Quebec premier. Or Bernard Lord, for example, who's a former New Brunswick premier and um, you know, raised by an uh, Anglophone father and a Francophone mother, is, is perfect in both official languages. Uh, none of the 14 candidates has that ability to speak both official languages of the country that well. Uh, it's not to say none of them is functionally bilingual. Some of them are. Not very many, but some of them are. Uh but it it does I mean I guess I wrote the thing because it points to the fact that, that clearly um for whatever reason uh those who are attracted to the Conservative Party leadership today do not feel that that perfection in both of our official languages is important. Uh and apparently um you know, someone's gonna win who's not gonna have Mulrooney's or Trudeau's French. Um, and, uh, and so clearly, this is not as big a priority as it once was. I mean, 30 years ago, I, I'm, you know, I was at that leadership convention in 1983 that picked Brian Mulroney, mm-hmm. and, and I remember the, one of the most important arguments he had going for him then was, uh, look, conservative delegates, if you think it's okay to basically write off one-third of the country, namely the people in this country for whom French is their first language, uh, you know, then let's just keep doing what we've been doing. And remember, at that point, this is 1983, the liberals had basically been in power, uh, you know, nonstop since 1963. I mean, there was that little Joe Clark interregnum for nine months, but basically that was it. And and Mulroney made the argument that if we're going to keep writing off French Canada, uh, whether it's in Quebec or New Brunswick or Manitoba or Ontario or wherever, we're not going to get anywhere. And that was incredibly persuasive. And, of course, Mulrooney won on the basis, I would say not insignificantly, of his perfection in both languages. And in the 84 election, uh, won the biggest majority in Canadian history, including... I think it was 59 of Quebec's 75 seats and and don't think his uh, ability to be a great French speaker
1: had nothing to do with that. Well, of course it it had a lot to do with it and 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 we tend to maybe just you know not pay much attention to the to the francophone element of this but I I remember covering the uh, the liberal leadership race in uh, I think it was 2006 that ultimately uh, selected Stéphane Dion uh, to to be their leader. Uh, that didn't go well. But anyway, th- that Friday night if you recall Steve uh, when the all the candidates uh, for that leadership race were making their speeches uh, Bob Ray was vilified because he didn't speak one word of French during his 15, 20-minute speech, whatever it was. And, and the irony there is, of course, he's he's fluently bilingual, but mm-hmm. he just he omitted it. And, he, and and the liberals, every the media jumped all over him and said, are you writing off Quebec? And all of a sudden, he's playing defense. So it does matter to people.
0: Yeah, and it particularly matters to the Liberal Party, for whom, of course, the, the whole issue of alternating between French and English leaders was always a ticket to success for so long. I mean, you well know, in the 20th century, I think the Liberals were basically called the natural governing party because they were in power for maybe 75, 80 percent of the time in the 20th century. Or if they weren't, it sure felt that way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, yes, in fairness to Bob Ray in that occasion, he, he, walked, he walked up to that podium and he did not bring a text with him. No teleprompter, no text. He winged it. I mean, he knew what he wanted to say, but he also wanted to, to show uh, what a powerful speaker he was, and he was. Uh, but you're right. At, at some point, uh, he kind of just sort of forgot to, to, to go back and forth in both official languages. I think he eventually got to some French right near the end, but it took a long time. But, but to me, what's interesting about it now is, you know, the, 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 the candidate, the leader in this country who is sort of best able to articulate the aspirations of French Canadians, uh, tends to win the majority of the seats in the province of Quebec. And if you win the majority of seats in the province of Quebec, obviously you've got a great shot at winning a majority government across the country. And I look at Justin Trudeau right now, who has the majority of the seats in the province of Quebec, and he won a majority government. I already talked about Brian Mulroney, cleaned up in Quebec, won a majority government. Cleaned up two elections in a row, let's remember, 84 and 88. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, you look at Pierre Trudeau, who won 74 out of 75 seats in the province of Quebec in 1980. Uh, Obviously a majority government there. Uh, What's interesting to me is the new playbook. And the new playbook seems to look like this, in today's Conservative Party anyway. French, perfection in French as a second language, is no longer important to having a majority government in the country. Just look at the new coalition we've put together. And let's recall, Stephen Harper won three straight elections, including a majority government at the end in his last one, despite the fact that he had almost no representation at all in the province of Quebec. I think by the end he had five out of 75 seats, something like that. And, I I mean, his French was okay, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He basically, you know, grew up in – born and raised in Ontario, grew up in Alberta with, with, uh, you know, not much access to French. Uh, his French was not bad at all. But the Conservatives seem to have decided, just by virtue of the fact of who's running, uh, that, that you know perfection in both official languages is not that important because the winning candidate probably won't have that facility, and their new winning coalition, as evidenced by Stephen Harper's victory, doesn't really include Quebec or, frankly, for that matter, much of French Canada. And yes, I guess you can win a majority government that way, but I'm not sure what it does for national unity when French Canada sort of feels excluded from the majority government of the day. It's a it's a fascinating conundrum that uh, I think the party finds itself in right now. How,
1: are they being short-sighted, though, in, in, in that kind of an assessment, though, Steve, when you look at this? And uh, if you look at it on the surface, yeah, he won a majority government without much uh, success in Quebec. We get that. But if you know, let's let's peel back a few of those layers there, and that and remember the political dynamic. That was Michael Ignatieff he was running against, and the Liberal Party was in shreds at that stage. Uh, Jack Layton with the Orange Crush, which is essentially uh, because of the success that they had in the province of Quebec. So, absolutely, it, it, so Quebec does matter. And I think the I think the Conservatives are selling themselves short if they say no, we can do this without Quebec. I, I think I think the Harper majority, the way it happened, was an anomaly. I don't think it's a
0: trend at all. It's to, it was totally an anomaly, if you look at the way Canadian his, history has gone for the previous 145 years, for sure. Any governing majority government coalition in the past always included Quebec, and you you made a joke earlier about John George Diefenbaker. I mean, the fact is, uh, even though he could barely speak a word of French, Deef swept Quebec. Yeah. And for his 1958, 208-seat majority government, which at that time was the largest in Canadian history, he did, even though he had no facility in the second language, uh, in his second language, uh, he did sweep Quebec. I mean, I, I don't think he can do that anymore. At least it hasn't been done since then. And that was a real one-off, a real unusual election, uh, which had uh, probably more to do with the fact that the liberals were so despised at the time as opposed to any great love for John Diefenbaker in the province of Quebec. But I'm not sure what other what other conclusion can you draw, Bill, when you consider the fact that, that the truly bilingual candidates uh, who could have been you know, competitive with Mulroney or Trudeau's uh, facility in both official languages, have taken a pass on this thing. I mean, I mentioned Jean Charest and Bernard Lord. I'm sure there's other candidates as well who are out there who are equally good in both official languages. But everybody's essentially taken a pass on it. And that may have something to do with the fact that the Trudeau liberals are pretty popular right now. And I think the operating wisdom uh, among opposition parties is that he's probably going to win the next time out, and do you want to, you know, it'll probably take two elections to knock them off. That's the conventional wisdom right now. Mm-hmm. And do you really want to spend, uh, you know, 10 years, you know, potentially six, seven, eight years of your life in opposition uh, before you get a chance to be prime minister? Opposition leader, as you know, is the worst job in politics anywhere in the country. I don't care if it's at the federal or provincial level. It's it's sort of negative, complaining uh, harsh politics every day of your life and, it's, and you don't get to run anything and you don't get to make any decisions, right? It's no damn fun at all. So, uh, you know, you can see how the appeal of the job might not be there for those uh, who have that facility in both official languages. But but that's where we are today. Now, Bill, most importantly, I don't want to take anything away from uh, the candidates in this race, the 14, and they're, and certainly not all 14 of them, but, but some of them do have facility in French. Chris Alexander, uh, who's... Uh, in the previous parliament, he lost his seat in the, in the last election, but but he does have good facility in both official languages. Not Mulroney or Trudeau-like perfection, but he's good. Uh, Aaron O'Toole can get by in both official languages. Um, there's another candidate who has no chance of winning. He's probably 13th or 14th on the list of, of names, and in fact, I'm blanking on his name right now, Rick somebody or other. Uh, I confess, I hadn't heard of him before he jumped into the race. He's good in both official languages. The former speaker from Saskatchewan, Andrew, Andrew Sheer, yeah. is good in both official languages. But of all the people, you know, Michael Chung is pr- is pretty good in French as well. Um, but uh, Rick you know, Peterson w- w- is the
1: guy you're thinking Rick of. Rick Peterson,
0: thank you, Rick Peterson. Um, the, uh, the the people who you sort of, you know, who everybody says are the likeliest uh, champions for this job. Uh, Maxime Bernier, for example, obviously perfect in French, it's his first language, but but just okay in English. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephen Blaney, his first language is French, obviously good in French, not very good at all in English. Uh, Lisa Raitt, uh, terrific in English, her first language, not very good at all in French. Uh, Kelly Leach, a big fundraiser, um, obviously very fine in English, her first language, terrible in French. Uh, And, and, you know, down the list we go. Uh, The fact of the matter is... Probably whoever wins this leadership contest is just not going to rise to the level that we have been accustomed to in this country for a while now when it comes to facility in both official languages. When I put the blog post out the other day, uh, yesterday I guess it was, when I put that out there you know, with the headline, Where Have All the Bilingual Candidates Gone?, uh, somebody s- sent me an email in return saying they're still in the 1980s. And I had to, I had to laugh out loud. I mean, it's true. This was considered an absolute necessity for the job 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And for some reason, it's not anymore. And I think it says something about the state of, Politics in the country today, and to be sure, the state of politics in the Conservative Party today.
1: Well, I, I, as I mentioned, I watched. I got about thirty seconds left here. I watched a few minutes of the French language debate uh, just before, uh, of course, uh, uh, Kevin O'Leary jumped into this, and, and it was. It, it reminded me of trying to speak French in grade twelve school. It, it, I went self secondary when I was up there, and I just yeah, it
0: was painful. Some it, of
1: it. it was, and and I got to figure the Francophones that are watching that are thinking, uh, sorry, you know, don't even try. Uh, well, and, 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 it's, you- and, and as you mentioned in the piece here, it's not just Quebec they're talking about here. When you talk about Francophone Canada, you're talking about Northern Ontario, you're talking about Manitoba, you're talking about a good deal of the East Coast as well. That's a pretty big chunk of voters to to, to simply alienate.
0: No question. And I know you've got 10 seconds left here, so I'll simply say, you know, imagine the flip side. Imagine somebody vying for Prime Minister in English Canada who could barely speak English. I mean, we wouldn't give that person a second look, right? And Stéphane Dion had a lot of problems getting votes in English Canada because of that. So, anyway, that's where we are, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM
2: 900 CHML.
1: The election of uh, Donald Trump as president of the United States has, uh, well, had a number of different effects, uh, let's put it that way, uh, on on politics most certainly, but also on journalism. And it started during the campaign, of course, as uh, the Trump run for the presidency uh, ran its course through uh, the year 2016, uh, with uh, what some people are calling fake news, others are calling alternative facts, uh, euphemisms galore about this, uh, about some of the untruths that have been spoken uh, by Mr. Trump, now President Trump, uh, both during the campaign and even since his inauguration just a few days ago. And uh, there were quite a few eyebrows raised the other day when uh, the New York Times, in one of their headlines, uh, finally said liar uh, in reference to some of the alternative facts that were being presented. Uh, The Boston Globe has done a similar editorial calling a lie a lie. Uh, Some people are pretty skittish about this, about using words like that, and would rather, I think, probably cling to those euphemisms. So what, what kind of a conundrum are journalists in these days in trying to cover this, and how do you cover this? And do you identify this, or do you just let it roll? And as, as one journalist says, we'll let, uh, just let the, uh, the the readers or the listeners decide for themselves. John Best has been in the business a long time, of course. He is now, now the publisher of The Bay Observer, and he joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, what do, how, listen, you were news director at CHCH for many, many years, and of course you've been in journalism for a long, long time, uh, you've seen them all, you've covered them all, uh, we used to, I, I'm not sure if we were ever comfortable you know, calling somebody out like this, but at what point do you, you say, okay, you've stepped over the line, and we have to call this what it is, at, at what point do you back off? It's, it's a real conundrum, I would think, for journalists.
3: Well, I think it is, and uh, the, if your question is at what point, uh, I think we've reached it, frankly. Uh, uh, oh, know, then every,
1: then what did, why did it take so long, then? Uh,
3: well, I mean, every day, uh, I, it, it's really interesting. I, I read the Boston Globe uh, article where he, he talked about the fact that, you know, they're now actually using the word lie and liar. I, I noticed it last uh, oh, over the last three or four days, actually, watching CNN, and uh in in the body of a report uh a a straight news report a reporter would refer to uh Trump's uh, allegations as baseless um uh, now nor in the old days uh you know if it was Nixon or something like that the, the, the you know the the president would make a statement and then normally it would be the editorial uh, group that that would discuss it and and conclude that it was false and and so the falseness would be dealt with on the editorial side, the opinion side, rather than in the body of a straight-up news story. But it appears that CNN and obviously other news media have made the decision that where something is demonstrably untrue, it's untrue that everybody can see it's untrue, that there's no reason to just go to the editorial side to make the, the assertion that it's untrue. You can do it right in the body of the story, and that's a... That's quite an escalation, I must say. Uh,
1: I would imagine there were discussions with the uh, the lawyers of those organizations before they actually printed out th- those words, uh, especially with a, uh, an individual like Mr. Trump, who is as litigious as he is.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, you're on fairly safe ground if you say that the facts are not true. Um, as, as was pointed out in the article uh, that I read today, if you use the word liar, uh you are implying uh, well more than implying you're basically saying that the person deliberately told untrue facts or untrue information uh with an intent to deceive uh whereas uh it is possible and we see it all the time where where people will make statements that that are not true but it's uh either out of mistakenness or uh just poor choice of words in which case they're They're not lying. They're simply asserting something that's proven to be factually incorrect. It's splitting hairs a little bit, and I I think there's still some caution, at least on the broadcast side, about actually using the word liar. But it's uh, we're getting to the point where I think it's it's going to happen more and more in the mainstream media.
1: There was always this hesitance, and and you know I can think of a thousand different examples of, of elected officials, in particular, John, that have been guilty of uh, of uh, being less than truthful. Let me put it that way. There's another euphemism that we can throw in there. Uh, you know Bill Clinton, I did not have sex with that woman you know to the, to the national t v audience and and on and on it goes, and you mentioned Nixon, and there have been others but but is there a tendency on on behalf of of the public to simply shrug that stuff off and say, well they're politicians, all of these guys lie, all these people lie so what what's the big difference
3: Well, that is the danger uh, i mean I mean this is a very difficult situation. I think the media. Uh, collectively, the mainstream media have have determined that they are going to identify uh, all of Trump's misstatements. Uh, they're going to flag every one of them, and and I think you know the, that's done in the in the feeling that if you don't do it, then you're really caving in. You're you're normalizing lying. On the other hand, if every single day uh, you report that the president lied. I think the public will get inured to that as well, and and it'll have no real impact. Uh, you know, imagine we've got at least four years to go, um, and if every day the story says here's another thing that Trump said that was untrue, um, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a catch twenty two because if you ignore his lies, you're enabling him, but if you report them every day, you're you're sort of normalizing them from the sense that there's no shock value anymore.
1: Why wasn't there much of a pushback when? Let's go back to the campaign uh, and some of the things. and And some people are going to categorize some of the things that Trump said as well. They're just little white lies. So what's the big deal? You know, the the one that you know he the NFL talked to him about canceling the debates, You know, because of the, which which never happened. Obviously, we all know that. But people just tend to say, yeah, so what? Uh, but you know, the problem I guess you have here, John, is that people seem almost desensitized to it now.
3: Well, people uh, not only desensitized to that, but just the the total public discourse uh, in this day and age. All you have to do is go online. Uh, forget about American politics. Go online locally, and and see the nastiness. And uh, uh, you know, people don't want alternative points of view. They they want to communicate through chat discussions and uh, uh, you know Facebook groups and so on. They they appear to only. Talk to people that share their view, and uh, they want to harshly attack anybody who has a, a point of view that's different. And I mean, this comes from both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, just a, uh, a total intolerance that's creeping into public discourse everywhere. It's uh, it's a uh, really quite sad. I was I was looking at uh, in reading the Boston Globe story that was discussing, you know, the the broader issue of Trump's lying and what to do about it. Then you see the comments uh, that are posted by readers, and uh, just a harsh uh, difference. You know, they're they're either, yeah, that's a great article, or there's something wrong with you for, you know, uh, even having that thought. Uh, Very, very harsh and divided commentary that we're getting now. And And it's all, since we, you know, there used to be a bit of this with letters to the editor and in the print media, but nothing like the uh, the venom that's flowing back and forth now.
1: Well, yeah, that's, I mean, everybody's got a platform now. All you need is a Twitter account or a Facebook page, and, and you can throw that sort of stuff in there. I, I was uh, interested, though, in the last paragraph of the editorial in the Boston Globe, because I I think what it does is it, it capsulizes exactly the, I think, the, the quandary that journalists have to deal with here right now. It says, journalism that in the face of facts refuses... A reasonable and obvious judgment has abandoned not journalistic ethics, but common sense. Baker, that's uh, the publisher of the uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, who's refusing, by the way, to call Trump's lies lies and just says that's just Trump being Trump. Uh, Baker and all those who think his demurrals are reasonable now have a decision to make. Act as journalists or as part of the most prestigious union of stenographers this nation has ever seen. So, and, and, and it kind of goes to that old uh, phrase that came out years ago, and I, I wish I could uh, attribute I can't remember exactly who said it. Asking tough questions is journalism. Simply repeating what the politician says is, uh, is public relations. And there's a lot of public relations going on right now in the media.
3: Well, there is, um, although, uh, you know, when you start looking at, at, you know, papers like the Boston Globe and the New York Times starting to reassess and c n n which was a pretty straight up and down news organization with not a lot of political bias, although they seem to be shifting um uh, more recently with some of their acquisitions but um they they appear to be taking a a more aggressive stand a more decided stand on um uh, on this and it's it's all triggered frankly uh by the trump phenomenon there's uh you know prior to this uh I you know nobody I can't rec- even even in, on his worst day I don't think the word liar was ever actually applied to Nixon uh you know it was all about he said this but here are the facts and it was left up to the news consumer to decide you know the word liar ultimately crept in uh you know when books were written about the Nixon era but I don't think the news media that were covering it on a day-to-day basis ever used those kind of terms
1: no, I can't recall an instance like that either. And I even all the coverage of, of Watergate and the investigations, and they started impeachment hearings and everything else. And I watched many of those committee meetings. And the word hardly—I I don't think it ever came up during that. It might have, but it, it's, it certainly didn't have the resonance that uh, that it should in in a situation like this right now. But 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 how does this? How does this correspond, and you touched on this a second ago, with with the way that it's being received right now? I mean, you know, they referenced the Boston Globe editorial started off talking about Walter Cronkite calling out the U.S. government, the Johnson administration of those times, and basically suggesting, although I never used the word, suggesting that they were lying about what was happening in Vietnam. Uh, Cronkite went over there himself, and I think uh, the famous quote from Lyndon Johnson was, if, I, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the nation. Uh, that's not the case anymore because if you don't like what Walter Cronkite or what any of his ilk are saying, you simply go to another network and find a, or, or a single on social media the, and and find your own comfort level. Somebody who's going to say something that you will agree with.
3: Well, and and that is exactly the problem. It, it's uh you know you can dial dial an opinion now. Uh, it used to be opinion was at least uh, you know I'm sure that opinion always uh, had its biases, but uh, there once was a time when. Uh, you know, you'd look at an opinion piece, and you may agree with it or disagree with it, but, you, you know, you you wouldn't be able to actually curate an opinion piece to suit your needs. Now, uh, you know, there's a, a million shades of gray in, in media. You can, you can probably find a media outlet that perfectly reflects your views and biases, but is that what the news media are supposed to do? Are we supposed to you know, coddle people and reinforce them? Or are we supposed to challenge, uh, you know, uh, accepted wisdom, uh, especially when it's pointing us maybe in the wrong direction? It's uh, it's a tough time. I mean, there's so many ways that journalism is under attack now. It's under attack economically, which gets at the ability of news organizations to have enough talented people around to, to do really serious journalism. But it's also under attack from the standpoint of credibility. I mean, there once was a time when people used the news media to validate their opinions. So, uh, you know, if you could get to a reporter and get them to write a story that was somewhat sympathetic to your view, that would go into the media, and then the general public would read it, and they say, well, it's in the paper. Uh, You know, and and that would carry some credibility. But but now, if people see an opinion or or a set of facts in the news media that they disagree with, uh, they just go to another media outlet that's closer to their view. But it goes. A-
1: but it goes further than that, though. It's simply okay. You know, if, if you're on the right side of the political spectrum uh, in the states, more than likely you're probably watching a lot of Fox News, uh, and you 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 don't get that 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 whole picture because you don't want to hear the other side. You don't want to see what MSNBC is doing or what CNN is doing or anyone else. You just want to be fixated on the the place that's going to give you the kind of stuff that you want to hear. And and the next level to that, and, and Trump is the one that has really initiated this right now. Is anybody that disagrees with you all of a sudden is fake news? In other words, you have to not just say this is what I prefer, but you have to discredit the other side. That 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 has to be part of the game now, and and he's playing it as well probably more than anyone else has.
3: Yeah, it's it's more than just discrediting; it's the total destruction of of someone who who expresses an opinion that's different than yours. We see it in you know on on the national level with the uh, national media we see it here at the local level with uh, people being ridiculed and lampooned it's uh, it's not it's not enough to simply uh, disagree it's you have to absolutely destroy the credibility of the individual that, that expresses an opinion different than yours so we've lost the whole area of public discourse it it kind of makes me think you know if you look at the history of journalism uh, journalism started out as nothing but opinion, nothing but pamphleteering. uh There was no uh, objectivity to it whatsoever. uh you know in the turn of the last century, uh every reasonable sized town had a conservative newspaper and a liberal newspaper and if you read some of those articles, I mean they were terribly slanted uh on the political side. Um, we're we're kind of back into that now, uh, where you know you you can get the opinion you want, and if you don't like the opinion you want, go somewhere else and you'll find it.
1: There is such a thing as fake news. I, I understand that Trump is going to label anything that, that he doesn't like as fake news, but but th- this is I think one of the other things that's muddying the water, isn't it, John? That that there are stories that are basically false. I mean, there's there's absolutely no facts at all in these stories, and people see these things on social media and cling to them.
3: Absolutely. And, and, you know, the producers of fake news, and and that is fake news, uh, as was pointed out in some of the articles we've been looking at, is simply totally made up. It's just a total false uh, story made up. And, you know, a lot of that fake news uh, is made up with a view towards attracting clicks in order to attract advertising revenue. So that now we go back to Google and some of these companies that uh, provide money uh, for, uh, you know, sites that have to prove nothing other than the number of hits they get. Uh, you know, that so that's part of the problem, and that's part of the reason why I think you're seeing Facebook trying to do a little bit of a, a job on curating uh, what is fake news and what isn't instead of just going by the number of clicks that an article gets and say that's the trending uh you know that's the trend today they're they're now subjecting it to some third party review uh peer review and and so they will now post disclaimers that that will say uh, this story has been rebutted by uh professional fact checkers whether that'll overall have any impact it's hard to say because you know the, the just the, the sheer volume of places you can go for news now is you know it's just overwhelming
1: yeah i i don't even know if news is the right word or information is the right word i mean there's so much uh, coming at us now we're inundated with this stuff uh the concern i've got is is for the consumer for those that want to try to find out what's going on it's it's very difficult to sift through this and and to try to you know distract you know the, the fake news over here, and, and try to uh, embrace reality. It's uh, it's 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 cloaked at this stage, and that makes it that much more difficult. Which is maybe why some people are just tuning out altogether.
3: Well, that's the danger. Uh, you, you, what you end up with is a, a public that's even more disengaged, or if they are engaged, they're engaged based on uh, false notions, uh, stuff that doesn't bear uh, scrutiny. It's a it's a really you know we're in a, a real you know wild west. I, it doesn't even describe uh, the crazy uh, world that we're in right now. And I, you know, it, at the end of the day, uh, it's going to be about education. Uh, I I think we have to start teaching some kind of news literacy at the public school level. I don't think you can wait till high school, or uni- certainly can't wait till university. But I think you have to teach it in public school because. By the time kids get to be 9, 10, or 12, they're already got devices in front of their faces, their iPads and so on, and they're already, uh, God knows what they're consuming. But there has to be some kind of literacy uh, around journalism provided. or uh, I mean, it's already very alarming to see how many people get all of their news online and uh, there was a fairly major survey done uh, in the States just recently that demonstrated that people are woefully unable to tell the difference between fake news and real news. So, if you're getting it all offline and 80% of what you're getting is fake news, that's, you know, it's, it, we, we've come a long way from when dad came home from the job at the factory and sat down and read the newspaper for an hour and a half. Uh, you know, dad, who didn't have a college education, was probably better informed than ninety percent of the people that we're dealing with now.
1: Well, as evidence of that, I, mean, I, I look at some of the comment sections on Facebook and on and, and some of the tweets I see as well, John. And and I know some of these people. Um, these are people that I've known for many many years. And I'm, I'm reading some of their comments to these stories, which are falsehoods. And I'm thinking, how could you fall for that? And, and, and it's amazing. But I, I, I guess you you see what you want to see in a situation like that. You believe what you want to believe uh... You know, even if it's on that there's—I don't know if you've seen the Facebook posting. There's one of it, uh, and well, the the guy that works on Kelly Leach's campaign, of course, uh, put a, a posting up there a couple of weeks ago that said that the Trudeau government was giving millions of dollars to Hamas, and all the Conservatives jumped all over it's—it's it's a lie. There is no credibility to that at all, but people believed it obviously because they they wanted to believe it.
3: Absolutely, and and with with fake news, uh, when I. My definition of fake news is is news that is obviously completely false, and done so uh, with a view, uh, with largely a commercial uh, motive, uh, which is uh, attracting as many clicks as possible in order to attract revenue. But, you know, with with the way graphics, uh, I mean, at one time graphics, if we're just talking about graphics, that at one time was the the purview of a very small group of talented people who could produce uh, graphics. Now, with uh, various programs, uh, you know uh, that people can use Photoshop and and even more simplified ones. You can create a website that literally looks like CNN's website or the Globe and Mail's website. I mean, you can, you know, cut and paste, you can steal logos, you can you can put a site together that, that is so believable uh, that, you know, even a sophisticated news consumer can be fooled for a while.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Great job by Global News uh, uncovering this story. The federal government apparently is uh, making efforts to try to eliminate a workplace perk that you and I, as taxpayers, have paid almost $4 billion for. And it's probably not over yet. Let's uh, bring Monique Scotty into the conversation. Monique, of course, is the online political reporter with Global News and uh, joins us here on 900CHML. Monique, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
2: It's great to be here, Bill. Uh,
1: what, how did you guys find this? I mean, uh, we, we always know the stories about you know the government spending way too much money on this and that. They certainly don't you know jump in the, on top of a mountaintop and talk about this. Uh, you had to do some digging to find this.
2: Yeah, we did. And it's uh it's something that has been in the uh the public sphere for a few years. They they didn't make a secret of the fact that they were trying to end this perk, which is linked to severance pay. So, up until about 2010, if you worked for the federal government in the public service and you quit your job or you retired, you got severance pay. And that's uh that's pretty unheard of in the private sector. Normally, severance pay is is just for people who are fired or laid off. Uh, so the government in 2010 said, enough's enough, we gotta get rid of this thing. Uh, but what that meant is that they had to pay out, uh, a chunk of money to every civil servant who had been accumulating this severance over the years. And that's the number that we've uncovered this week. And it's about 3.7 billion dollars. And it's gonna, it's gonna get bigger.
1: This is, listen, I, we've had discussions on the program in the past. I mean, I, I still have a problem with people that bank sick days and, and try to use them as holidays. I, on a philosophical level, I just think it's wrong, 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 because it doesn't happen with most people that, that go to work every day. But and, and as you described on Global News, and as you guys just told us now, Monique, this is, this is almost like a, a, a retirement plan for these people. It's not even, I think, I don't know if severance is the right word for it, because they're making money while they're still at work.
2: Absolutely. O- over and above their salary. Yeah, and I think uh, I mean I don't think anybody would argue that if you're uh, if you're giving somebody an entitlement for decades and you take it away, that you shouldn't compensate them. Um, I spoke to the Taxpayers Federation this week, and they agreed that this is a huge amount of money, but it, there's not a whole lot the government could have done to get out of paying it, uh, and that's unfortunate. But th- what they could have done is perhaps phased this perk out a lot earlier. Now, when this was introduced back in the 60s, the public service did not pay as well uh, as the private sector. And now salaries are, are a little bit more in line. So, really, they could have phased this out earlier and saved taxpayers uh, quite a bit of that big bill.
1: Have you been able to identify exactly when this came about? Was it a contract negotiation? Was it something the government offered? And, uh, if it was in the 60s, it was, well, more than likely the uh, either the Trudeau or the Pearson government, I would think.
2: Yeah, it's very likely. I'm not sure specifically which year it was. That, uh, and of course, there are different unions that represent different yeah. groups of, of public servants. But this was a, something that was added to contracts, basically to attract people into the public service. Because again, the, the salaries were not as good. And the government needed a way to sort of say, we're going to compensate you in a different way. And I think at the time, that was considered very fair and equitable. But as time went on, less so. And uh, I don't think anybody, even in 2017, would be arguing that public servants don't deserve benefits and they don't deserve the same perks and things that the uh, people get in the private sector. But I think uh, the concern from taxpayers' groups and from average Canadians is that sometimes they exceed uh, what we see in the private sector.
1: Uh, in, you mentioned 2010. It was the, the Harper government that said, okay, we're going to cease and desist. This has got to stop. Uh, did they develop a game plan on how to do this? I mean, they can't just pull the plug on you. Uh, this, as you mentioned. Uh, there's a sense of fairness that has to be in here, too. But uh, it, it just it, it boggles the imagination that it went on as long as it did.
2: It absolutely does. And they had to negotiate with, uh, I believe, more than 25 different bargaining units. So, I mean, this is a long process that's been ongoing since 2010. Now, the the Canada Revenue Agency was the last group of employees to come to an agreement with Ottawa. That happened last fall. They still haven't gotten their money, so there's more to come to that $3.7 billion total. And then some people have opted, which was their right, uh, to take the money on retirement. So down the line, we're going to keep paying as people leave the public service, if that's what they have opted to do. So... This is, a, this is a huge bill, and there are other perks, of course, uh, built into public service contracts that uh, the taxpayers, federations, and uh, and some other people have had some issues with over the years. You mentioned the uh, the sick leave. That's yeah. uh, an ongoing controversy.
1: Yeah, I, I you'd like to think uh, somebody in government up there, Monique, is is looking at this and saying, okay, I want you to start going through these contracts and and find out because I I, I agree with you and I understand the, the the rationale here that back in the day in the 1960s it was probably necessary to do this sort of thing to get people to come and work in the public service and, uh, and uh, but that's not the case anymore and and the question I guess that that you've raised here is if this is happening with the this contract and this policy, what other ones are out there that we don't know about
2: yeah absolutely and there i as i mentioned i spoke to the taxpayers federation earlier this week the uh the national director aaron woodrick said, you know what, we, we understand why this is costing a lot of money, and uh, it sucks for the Canadian taxpayer, <laughs> but what we would like to see moving forward is just what you just said, is that the government take a hard line, go into negotiations with, a, you know, a tough but fair approach with the unions, and say, you know, things like sick leave, we are not going to, uh, to roll over on that, we're going to push. Uh, things like moving expenses. We saw a big controversy right before Christmas involving the Prime Minister's office, but moving expenses are another thing that the Taxpayers Federation is concerned about. They they think, you know, that maybe those... Those benefits are a little too rich, and uh, the government should be looking at if it could save money uh, down, the line, down the line the next time that there's a, a contract negotiation.
1: Yeah, well, good luck with that. Remember the Ontario government tried to do that with the teachers a few years ago, Monique, and uh, that didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a matter of fact, after Dalton McGinney left and, and Kathleen Wynne came in, uh, they, she pretty much reversed everything and ran back into it again. So it's it's. I understand where the Taxpayers Federation is coming from this, but the reality is, is politicians don't seem to have the, the, the will to want to get tough with a lot of these people. That doesn't happen very often.
2: No, we, uh, we did speak to the president of the Treasury Board, Scott Bryson. Uh, obviously, his, his predecessor, Tony Clement, was the guy who initiated this process, but Bryson is now the person who's sort of shepherding it. And he said, you know what, we, we have a lot of respect for our public servants, and they, uh, they're top-notch, world-class Employees uh, and we want to continue that relation, a good relationship with them. Um, and he, he didn't question our numbers, but he said, you know, I have to look into this a little bit more before I make any further comments. So I think there's a reluctance, perhaps, on the part of the government to uh, to you know stir the pot. Well.
1: <laughs> yeah well, this is the you know if you live in glass houses don 't throw stones right because uh, if the if the elected officials start getting on on the public servants about this, I mean let, you know they can turn this around and say, do you want to talk about pensions? do you want to talk about your benefits? do you want to talk about your office expenses because they 're pretty secretive about what they're doing too
2: Mm-hmm. absolutely for sure
1: uh so i mean it 's going to be a lot of finger pointing going on here and 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 i i don 't so sure that anybody wants to get into that kind of a fight up in Ottawa these days. But but the 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 overriding question now is is how long is this going to take to phase this program out?
2: And it's a very good question. It's one that we've uh, tried to get an answer to over the past couple of weeks. As I mentioned, the the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, they should be getting their checks. Sometime over the next year, uh, they've just come. They've just ratified their agreement with the government, um, so those checks are coming. And then, of course, the the folks who are going to retire down the line, and they they're going to be paid out uh, quite a bit of money in, in lump sums um, as as the years go on. So it could take another you know ten fifteen years before this is all over. Um, but I should mention that once it's all over, the perk itself—that giving that severance check to people who quit or who retired before they got rid of that perk—that was costing taxpayers 500 million per year. So we're going to be saving that amount of money, and that's that was kind of the argument that the conservatives made. This is going to be short-term pain for long-term gain.
1: How are the unions reacting to this?
2: You know what? I think the unions, uh, as always, are uh, very much committed to their membership. They want to make sure sure, that... Uh, yeah, that their members get uh, and re- retain some of the benefits that they've had over the years. That's their main goal. Um, they, you know, they were interviewed about this, this particular perk uh, repeatedly over the past few years, and they've always maintained that, you know, this was a fair deal, and, and and getting these payouts for people who accumulated severance over the years is fair and equitable. And the labor lawyers we've discussed this with have agreed with that. So uh, I think that the unions are, are probably, uh, you know... Not, uh, not celebrating this $3.7 billion, but it's certainly not a, a loss for their members.
1: No, but you got to wonder what this is going to do to their mindset when they get back into contract negotiations. Are any of those coming up anytime soon? I'm wondering if this is going to be a sticking point.
2: It could be. I mean, quite a few of these contract negotiations have have just finished up um so it could be a little while before we see another round, but as always, it's you know, it's always a contentious uh thing when unions sit down and they want to you know, the best deal for their members and and the government wants the best deal for taxpayers and sometimes they butt heads.
1: We were just talking uh, earlier in the program, Monique, about uh, the, the job journalism uh, has evolved into now. And, and uh, you know, the, the reality is, is a, you know there's not as many people in, in newsrooms these days as there used to be, which means you've got to do about 15 other things that you probably didn't do. You're, everybody's multitasking. It's got to be rather onerous, though, to, to have to go through all the fine prints and, and, and on these contracts to try to find stuff like this. But somebody has to do this, and, and that's, that's the role of journalism, really, isn't it?
2: I hope so, yeah. Moving forward, I think that uh, this is something that we're going to continue to monitor. And as you mentioned, there'll be negotiations in the future, and the Taxpayers Federation, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, these are all groups that, you know, have the, the interests of the private sector workers at heart and, and average Canadians. And they all acknowledge, again, that, uh, that public servants deserve uh, good benefits, they deserve good salaries, uh, but we can't, we can't go too far. So...
1: So what's, what's the follow-up? The government's going to continue to do this. Are, are they going to actually do some investigation themselves about some of these contracts and some of these perks?
2: We haven't really been able to get an answer on that question yet. Um, so I think... Uh, well, you know in your,
1: your past experience, Monique, what they do yeah. invariably is ride out the storm. Uh, you know, Mr. Bryson, and we've had Scott on the show many, and many times... Uh, The the political answer to this usually is, okay, it's going to be rough for two or three days and then people will forget about it and and we can just kind of get on with our lives and and carry on like this. But uh, you'd like to think that there's going to be a commitment from the government to say, you know what, we want to see what else we can do here to try to find these savings or what might be considered to be something that may be unfair.
2: Yeah, for sure, and and with a new government in Ottawa, it's still you know relatively fresh. We're in year two, but uh, the, yeah, I think the pressure is going to increase on them, to, especially in the, in the current climate with uh, deficit numbers increasing to way beyond what they said they were going to be. Finding savings in all departments and not just in in pay and in contract negotiations is, I think, going to re- remain a priority for this Liberal government, um, and we'll certainly keep pushing uh, over the next few months. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from. 9 to Noon on AM 900 CHML.